1: Hello, and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Charlotte Howard, The Economist's Energy and Commodities Editor. On Thursday, April 22nd, for Earth Day, President Biden will meet world leaders, including President Xi Jinping of China, for a virtual summit, aiming to convince countries to take bolder action on climate change. Does this mark a new era for American leadership on climate? Can China and America, at odds over human rights, security, and broader economic competition, find common ground against this common threat? And will countries take sufficient action to meet the challenge at hand? Ahead of the talks, governments have been updating the pledges they made in Paris six years ago.
2: The UK government is set to announce a pledge to cut carbon emissions by 78% by 2035.
3: The United years. States are both committed to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. This climate law is a game changer. There is a before the climate law and then after the climate.
1: The European Commission wants to cut emissions by 55% by 2030. China has announced ambitious plans to become carbon neutral by 2060. And America's new administration is putting climate policy front and center. President Biden is expected to unveil a new emissions reduction target and pledge support for poorer countries to fight climate change. This week's Earth Day Summit is a milestone ahead of the 26th UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties, otherwise known as COP26, scheduled to be held in Glasgow in November, which will gather all 197 UN member states. COVID-19 dented energy demand, but now the use of coal and natural gas looks set to roar back. Many countries are still consumed by the immediate challenges posed by the pandemic. Can a green recovery be achieved? And can Biden's meeting make a difference? I'm joined by two scholars who have been watching these developments closely from different points on the globe. Yifei Li is Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at New York University Shanghai and the author of China Goes Green, Coercive Environmentalism for a Troubled Planet. Ife Lee, welcome to Babbage.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: And Miranda Schroes has been a longtime advisor on environmental issues to the EU, to Angela Merkel's government in Germany, and to the government of Japan. She is currently Professor of Environment and Climate Policy at the Technical University of Munich. Miranda Schroes, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. I'm really happy to be here as well. Miranda, let's start with you. How important is COP26 and this Earth Day meeting that Biden has convened in the effort to curb
0: climate change? COP26 is a very important COP in a lot of ways. And that's because back in 2015, when the Paris Agreement was signed, It was done in such a way that there was room left for reconsidering whether or not globally we're doing enough. And so what will be happening in Glasgow this uh, end of this year is a discussion about how to ramp up the commitments of countries to act on climate change. And a second really important element here is that the United States, under the Donald Trump administration, backed out of the Paris Agreement. That's super important because the United States is about 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And so the Joseph Biden administration, with this next meeting, will have to convince the world that the U.S., is really going to be doing something about climate change and try to lead internationally and bring other countries along, convince other countries to also do more.
1: That's really interesting. Of course, since the Paris Agreement, even as the United States under Donald Trump stood still, there was a lot of progress made in terms of concrete targets set by other countries as well as new policies passed on a domestic level to try to curb emissions. ife in China, um, there's been a lot of activity in recent years. Can you describe how important the Chinese view the meeting later this year in Glasgow, as well as this meeting in Washington on the 22nd?
3: I think there are two very important factors in China's calculus in participating in the event. One is that the pandemic has led leaders and ordinary people in general to question whether this vision of shared future comes with hidden health and environmental costs and risks. Now, in this context, China needs to reestablish confidence in its model of development, and the carbon neutrality pledge is evidently a move in that direction. But also in the context of U.S.-China relations, China needs a wedge issue to begin rebuild their report with the United States. 50 years ago, China and the United States pursued what was known in 1971 as ping-pong diplomacy. That was the moment that really gave rise to the normalization of U.S.-China foreign relations. I think this summit in particular and environmental issues in general is going to be the ping-pong moment of 2021 for China and the U.S. to actually restart that relation building effort.
1: Ife, how does China view the Biden administration's credibility on this? Does it see America as perhaps becoming a more lasting partner? Or if not, how does it navigate the uncertainty that's inherent to a country that remains divided
3: over climate change? What many people don't seem to realize is that the U.S. and China had an incredibly robust track record of climate partnership before Trump took power, And that partnership was really registered on so many different levels, from youth advocacy to scientific collaboration and from non-state empowerment to policy learning. That was happening both in terms of government to government climate partnership and people to people climate partnership. Now what the Trump presidency really did in terms of its damaging effects on global climate governance is that the presidency demonized Chinese scientists. It stranded educational exchanges. It closed numerous channels of collaboration that previously took many, many years to foster. And many people in China are eager to see these channels reopen.
1: And Miranda, what does collaboration look like from Europe's perspective? Because one of the things that's been interesting to see across the globe is really the ways in which Countries view the green transition as both one that requires international collaboration, but also one that's paired with pretty aggressive industrial policy within economic blocks to try to
0: promote their own green industries. Well, collaboration in Europe has multiple dimensions. One is the internal dimension, because there is need within those 27 countries to come to an agreement on where we're going. And excitedly, some of the changes in the last years suggest that climate change is pretty high on the agenda and the targets are getting stronger and stronger. So that now, for example, the European Union has agreed to climate neutrality by 2050 And on top of that, you are seeing a growing number of countries within Europe agreeing to phase out the use of coal, which is the most intense emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. We're seeing agreements on speeding up the development of renewable energy. But a second dimension is the relationship between all of Europe and the rest of the world. Europe recognizes the need to help developing countries in their adaptation to climate change, as well as mitigation efforts. But at the same time, there's a competition element here. So just an example here, Europe was the leader in the development of solar energy 10 years ago, and now by far it's China. And so for some, there's also the question of how do you remain competitive in the future? And the way to remain competitive, at least most in Europe think this, is you have to be ahead of the game. You have to be the leader in this game, always pushing forward on the next green technology, because otherwise you will lose out. To that end,
1: every international climate policy is based on local politics, or as American pundits say, all politics is local. And so Yifei, as you've noted, China has really moved aggressively to to help support green industries in their nascency. At the same time, China continues to provide a huge amount of financing for foreign coal projects abroad, largely driven by domestic coal interests. So do you see that shifting?
3: Mm -hmm. The Chinese domestic coal interests are... Absolutely entrenched. I I think it's just very, very clear that coal is not going away anytime soon, even though they have uh, pretty ambitious domestic plans to phase out the use of coal in a gradual fashion internationally. That really is still uh, the elephant in the room, if you will. Now, I think it's most evidently and certainly going to happen that China will begin to diversify away from coal in a gradual fashion. But I think the real question that we ought to be asking is what China will be diversifying into. Now, we see domestically that China's efforts to diversify away from coal has materialized in the form of heavy investments in hydropower, in hydro dams all over the country. Now, these dams are hugely controversial, not only because of the ecological and social damages on the ground to the local communities, but also the impact of these hydropower dams on downstream communities that are outside China. We're talking about, for example, the Mekong River Delta, where a host of Southeast Asian countries are involved.
1: Do you think that it's possible to ring fence climate as an issue from other priorities that are on the table in international diplomacy? This is, of course, most acute an issue for China, given some of the sanctions that have been rolled out in recent weeks over Xinjiang, but it's an issue all over the world. So how do those different foreign policy objectives align or undermine each other?
3: I think what was very interesting from John Kerry, who described climate change as what he called, and I quote, a standalone issue in U.S.-China foreign relations. Now, I hate to put it so bluntly, but I think it's his wishful thinking. Climate change, by definition, is not a standalone issue. Energy technologies are at once climate change and intellectual property rights issues. Conservation is at once climate change and ethnic minority rights issues. Hydropower is at once climate change and geopolitical issues. And atmospheric engineering is, again, climate change and territorial issues. So there's no freestanding climate change to speak of.
0: Yeah, I'm going to agree and disagree with Ife on this one, because if you look at the Climate change issue. This is an issue where we don't have the time to, for example, put sanctions on China and not move forward and not take action. And I think that's what John Kerry is talking about. Climate change is so big, so important, so pressing that we need action now. We have maybe a decade to act in order to keep emissions at a level that won't go above 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. And if we don't have China and Russia and other dictator countries on board that are big emitters, we're not going to get there.
1: So given that urgency, as well as the challenge in actually effectuating progress, what do you both think is a reasonable expectation from the meeting that Biden convenes on the 22nd, as well as from COP26?
0: Well, perhaps the meeting on the 22nd is the Biden administration's effort to introduce itself on the climate change front and to basically show that the U.S. is willing to act and will be taking some aggressive steps And that could range from arrangements to reduce the possibility for companies to shift locations from areas where you have high action on climate change to regions where you have less action on climate change to agreements on things like green financing and trying to promote international rules that will shift the institutional basis for action on climate change, so to go beyond the simple domestic measures that are to be established and to see if we can build more international elements into the agreement that will level the playing field globally, which would be of interest for most actors. And um, the other question is whether or not countries will be willing to put something like climate neutrality by mid-century into the agreement, because right now the Paris Agreement is actually only looking at 2030, and 2030 is tomorrow. So we really need to be thinking what comes after. So this will be a really, really important meeting, but only the first of many such meetings that will be happening the rest of this year.
3: Yeah, I agree that I think we need to think about two different levels of concerns. One is what most realistically will happen at the summit on the 22nd and at the COP and what ought to happen. Um, And I think in terms of what realistically could happen is enhanced nationally determined contributions, enhanced in the sense that these goals need to be a little more aggressive than what was in the Paris Accord. But let's not lose sight of the other side of the question, which is what ought to happen. I think a number of considerations, environmental justice. How do we bring in countries that currently don't have the technical and financial capacity and yet are suffering many of the negative consequences of climate change? Bangladesh comes to mind, right? So that international inequality needs to be addressed immediately like now. And also the issue of degrowth. We've been pursuing economic growth for so long without considering the negative consequences of a growth-oriented economic arrangement. So I think these issues, I don't think they're going to figure centrally in any of the declarations or joint agreements in any fashion, but perhaps on the side of the summits and meetings, these issues will emerge organically among the participants.
1: Yifei Lee Miranda Schroes, thank you for speaking with me.
3: Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Charlotte. It's been a great pleasure.
1: To keep up to date with all the latest news and analysis in the run up to the COP26 summit in November, subscribe to The Economist. You can find your best introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Coming up, we'll ask Professor Jason Bordoff, who is one of President Obama's top advisors on climate and energy, whether Joe Biden can establish America as a leader on climate change.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
1: Mr. Biden will shortly announce America's target for reducing carbon emissions, as required by the Paris Climate Agreement. But that's only one step in restoring America's credibility on the global stage. At home, he must advance his infrastructure bill, which if passed would represent America's largest green investment ever. And he must make good on America's past promises to help poor countries deal with rising temperatures. Can Mr. Biden succeed at home and abroad when climate has been off America's agenda for the past four years?
2: It's often said that 80% of success is just showing up.
1: Jason Bordoff, was Director of Climate and Energy on President Obama's National Security Council. He's now the co-founding dean of Columbia University's Climate School and a founding director of the Center on Global Energy
2: Policy. The United States is back in the game on climate, and even more than showing up, is recommitted to leadership through the extraordinary role that someone of the stature of Secretary Kerry is playing to travel the world and elevate ambition. So that that's really important, particularly after the last four years, and the approach the Trump administration has taken to climate action. I expect and hope there will be more than that. There will also be announcements from governments, announcements from private sector actors, showing that people are stepping up their ambition and engaging with the problem, making commitments that we can then hold them to be accountable to. And as part of that process of elevated ambition, of course, looking to the United States' own climate targets, the so-called nationally determined contributions, which I suspect will meet the expectations that many in the environmental community have laid out for the administration of around 50% reduction by 2030 relative to 2005. That would be a very ambitious target.
1: So let's break down the challenge into American action on the domestic stage and then how America can influence global progress more broadly. And of course, those two things are interconnected because you need to show that America is willing to make a serious commitment at home in order to convince other countries to do the same. But just to start uh, domestically, do you think that having an ambitious, credible, nationally determined contribution is possible? Or is it an oxymoron given some of the limitations in Congress already push back on many aspects of Biden's infrastructure bill?
2: It's very hard and it is possible, but ambitious. And in a sense, that's what a nationally determined contribution could be. So the Biden administration, broadly speaking, has three tools at its disposal, what it can do by itself without Congress, with executive action regulations to limit emissions from cars and power plants through the Environmental Protection Agency. Even there, there may be some limits because of what courts will decide they are allowed to do. Then the second big category is what they can do with Congress. Uh, Democrats control Congress, but in the Senate, you need 60 votes. And and here they have 51 with the vice president casting a tie-breaking vote, so can use the budget reconciliation process to do spending measures. And that's why part of the reason President Biden has proposed a very significant investment in climate and in infrastructure and in job creation. And then state level action is also very important. And we shouldn't forget the role that states can play. I think when you add all of those things up, you can get a good way toward a very ambitious target like 50%, but maybe not all the way there. Eventually, we are going to need additional climate legislation in the form of standards, mandates, a carbon price, uh, comprehensive climate legislation to really keep going long term.
1: So to your point, the infrastructure bill as proposed is largely a collection of carrots without any sticks to enforce the idea that America could move more quickly away from a carbon based economy. Do you think that's a fair characterization?
2: Well, it is not climate legislation. It is an infrastructure bill, a major investment in the U.S. economy. There is within this infrastructure bill, it's not a bill yet, it's a broad proposal, but it would include a mandate that the electricity system move to zero carbon energy over time, say by 2035. That's very important if it actually passes. But it is important to remember, I think, that there's been a lot of coverage of the dollar amounts in the bill, not so much the carbon reduction amounts that are in the proposal because they're not there yet. But we should remember that any amount spent is not the right metric of climate ambition as tons of CO2 reduced. Public investment is one key way to achieve that, but not every dollar spent delivers the same carbon reduction benefit. And so as this proposal moves forward and actually becomes a bill and there are trade-offs and some things fall out of the bill and some things stay in there, I think it's gonna be pretty important to keep our eye focused heavily on what dollar spent deliver the greatest return in terms of carbon reductions. I think things that would be very important in that regard would be investments in research and development demonstration and deployment of new technologies, building out a stronger transmission grid, building out an EV charging network. Those are things that I think then you can build on.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the second enormous piece of this, which is America's role on the global stage. How do you see the Biden administration trying to integrate climate into American foreign policy and diplomacy?
2: Having served on the National Security Council, I thought a lot about it. Secretary Blinken, I thought, gave an important speech this week about what it would look like to put climate at the center of foreign policy and said something to the extent of pick a security challenge that the US faces, climate change is going to make it worse. Climate change is about so many aspects of national security and foreign policy. So certainly, Secretary Kerry playing a role like he's playing, preparing to elevate ambition and climate diplomacy to be more ambitious with our carbon reductions in the UN climate meeting in Glasgow later this year. But it really goes well beyond that to mainstream considerations of climate in all aspects of national security and foreign policy. Many of the things that I dealt with, when I served in the White House. So, for example, security and stability around the world are central aims of U.S. foreign policy. But a strategy for security and stability in Iraq, for example will not be effective unless it considers the impacts of water scarcity and heat waves on the Iraqi people or the loss of Iraq's oil revenue as climate policy gradually erodes oil demand over time. So integrating climate in that way to many more conversations happening in the White House Situation Room, I think is really important. And then secondly, I think really looking at all the tools of foreign policy to help make it more affordable for developing countries and emerging market countries around the world to invest in clean energy. So climate is too important important not to be considered in every foreign policy and national security decision.
1: In the relationship with China, which is so crucial broadly for America's national security and economic interests, but also specifically in the progress that America and the world can make toward limiting emissions, do you think it's possible or even desirable to separate climate from other issues between America and China?
2: But look, the U.S.-China relationship is as strained as it's been in a very long time, and there are a lot of concerns from trade to human rights to intellectual property and others. Having said that, it is possible and desirable, uh, although not at all easy, (laughs) as Secretary Kerry has put it, to compartmentalize climate in the dialogue between the U.S. and China. And I think it is in both countries' interest to work together. We have the two largest emitters. If we're gonna make progress, we're gonna have to find ways to work together. And I should note that cooperation is important and necessary But we are increasingly seeing a view in the Biden administration that it's not only cooperation, it can be competition as well. And there, I think there's an element of industrial policy that people are starting to feel more comfortable talking about investing in areas where the U.S. wants to build a domestic capability and be able to compete with China. The Biden administration has consistently said it would hold China accountable. For global investments in coal projects, not only what China's doing at home, but it's building a lot of coal projects around the world through its Belt and Road Initiative. You can't beat something with nothing. So, if you want to push back on China building coal projects around the world, you need to be able to walk into a Southeast Asian country or, or somewhere else and say, we have another alternative that is financially viable, but also cleaner. So, that's going to be an important priority for the US, working with partners in Europe and elsewhere to think about how to unlock some of this multilateral finance.
1: And do you see that as an alternative for China? Does that fall into the camp of competition rather than cooperation? Or is there a possibility of cooperating with China in aid to poor countries that have a need both to increase access to energy and a desire to limit emissions?
2: Well, I think China has um, built up its own capacity to lend internationally that I think will make global cooperation difficult. I think there'll be other areas where we can cooperate with China.
1: It seems like the low-cost way to help a poor country would often be to provide American financing, but Chinese-made solar modules, right?
2: Well, I think that is one way that it has been done in the past, and I do think it's important for the United States as the Biden administration has committed to do, to fulfill the U.S. commitment to provide climate-related assistance to poor countries. I think about $2 billion of that is still outstanding, and there's much more we could be doing. We saw in the 1980s and 90s debt for nature swaps that linked debt relief to investments in biodiversity and reforestation. You might imagine something like debt for climate swaps to drive investment in low-carbon energy or or energy efficiency. Uh, So there's a lot that can and should be done there. And we can build those industries here at home, which can deliver economic benefits and then lower the cost of these new technologies. The same way, by the way, China did 10-15 years ago. It made a decision to build the world's solar panels, build a lot of the world's batteries, built those industries at home. We are able to buy cheaper solar panels here in the United States as a result, but China owns those industries. There's a lot more industries we're going to have to build. Things like hydrogen or or carbon capture technology. Let's build the technologies for some of the parts of the economy that are harder to reduce emissions in here at home. And the U.S. actually has a lot of of good advantages in resources and infrastructure and human skill and talent uh, to lead in those sectors, I think.
1: There's increasing appetite for investment to grow clean energy within Europe, within the United States. And that can bring real benefits in terms of scaling up Um, and lowering the cost of of new technologies, as you point out. Is there any risk to it that you see, or is it all for the good?
2: So according to the International Energy Agency, almost half of the cumulative emission reductions needed to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 come from technologies not yet commercially available. China dominates the market for solar panels and batteries. The U.S., uh, if it positions itself well, can dominate the markets for some of these new technologies second these technologies will be needed to decarbonize globally if you're going to ask countries that historically are not responsible for most of the emissions say rapidly growing countries in southeast asia or africa somewhere but we're going to need to figure out how to make cement and steel in low carbon ways how to power airplanes and, and ships i think part of climate leadership would be to build them here at home develop those technologies and help to drive down the costs of those early stage more nascent technologies so that down the road they're more affordable for the rest of the world. Because you have to remember in the future, roughly 95% of all greenhouse gas emissions between now and the end of the century are gonna come from outside the United States. And then third, these industrial policies can drive down the cost of what Bill Gates calls the green premium developing market countries which are poorer, they're not going to adopt low carbon solutions unless they're affordable. So we can help make that so for them. And that can help the US economy, US jobs, and recognizing that the United States is responsible for 25% of the emissions that have accumulated. So one way to address that inequity is to make it more affordable for some of these countries to think about pathways that make sense economically to move in a lower carbon direction.
1: Jason Bordoff, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thanks, Charlotte. Great to see you. Thanks for having me.
1: And thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And finally, we're moving. From May 4th in two episodes time, Babbage will be published on a Tuesday. That's every Tuesday from May 4th. The producers are Amika Shortino-Nolan, Abisoye Oshindaro, and Jason Hoskin. The editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Charlotte Howard, and in New York, this is The Economist.